The rest of us are going to be in Genesis chapter 1. And if you don't know where Genesis 1 is in your Bibles, please follow the third grade and below kids. They have a special class for you because they're going to teach you where Genesis 1 is. It's the first book in the Bible. And uh, let's go ahead and turn there. We're not going to be in Romans this morning, which is where we've been as a church. We're getting ready to conclude our study of the book of Romans. Lord willing, we'll be there next Sunday. Um, but we're not going to be there this morning. I'm asking you to pray with me one more time before we actually get into things. Father, thank you for your abundant blessings poured out upon us in Christ. We are rich beyond measure. Uh, we are grateful for what we have in Christ, and we're grateful that you give us so much and everything that we need, not just in him, but even meeting our material needs. Even thank you for a good and clear announcement from Mike this morning. Uh, it's great that we trust in you, and you remind us in different ways all the time that we are dependent upon you. So stir us up. Um, Encourage us, move us to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ and how we think about these things and how we act in light of these things. And now, God, please open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning what we're going to do in Genesis is we're going to talk about the most important person in your life. Newsflash, it's not you. <laughs> Newsflash, it's not your spouse if you're married. It's uh, not one of your children or all of your children. It's not your best friend. The most important person in your life is who we're going to talk about this morning. And the most important person in your life is none other than God. And so this morning we're going to talk about God in church. Amazing, huh? I came to church and we talked about God. Now, I hope we always talk about God in church because we have his revelation of himself. Next week when we're in Romans 15 and it deals with a lot of different people, individuals, we'll still talk about God because it ultimately ends up being about him and his fame and his glory. But specifically this morning, we're going to set everything else aside and focus specifically on the person of God. If this were a technical study, which it won't be, this would be a class in theology proper. Theos, God. It's important that we do this now and then. Someone wiser than I am once made this profound statement. The person said, The most significant thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. I think it's a significant enough statement. I'll say it again. The most significant thing about you is what you think of when you think of God. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of God, but by God's grace, what I want to do and what I want to have happen in my life as well is that we would submit ourselves to, to, to the revelation of God, to His Word, so that our thinking would be more appropriate, more fitting, more genuine, so that when we do think about God, that most important thing about us would actually be what is legitimate, what is true, what is genuine, so that we might truly worship Him so that we might truly be able to hope in Him. So that's sort of, if you will, the agenda for the morning, and that's where we're headed. If you'd like an outline this morning, we'll look at seven grand conclusions about God from Genesis. Seven grand conclusions about God from Genesis. And let's go ahead and begin with number one. When we're talking about God, we're talking about number one, the God who is. The God who is. By the way, as a footnote, 
I could have done all this from Romans. Everything we're going to see is in Romans. In fact, I wanted to do this from Romans, but this weekend was the conference at the prison, big annual conference there, and my assignment was to talk about God from the Old Testament. And so I just chose Genesis, even though it's all in Romans, okay? And since it's what's been on my mind, because it was a major big weekend there, I thought this would be good for us. In fact, I was encouraged by others who were there that said, you need to talk about this at Omaha Bible Church as well. And so we could see this in Romans. In fact, I guarantee you, you're going to hear this sermon again and again and again and again in one way or another, but you're going to hear it again in Romans maybe a little bit differently because we're talking about the big picture about who God is and what he's done, and we see it everywhere. Number one, God is, the God who is. Genesis 1-1, the first four words of the book say, in the beginning, God. Stop there, put a comma there, a pregnant pause there. In the beginning, God. I want to be careful this morning. I'm not like the selfish person that I am. And supernaturally, I want to pause and not read the verse and then quick talk about what I want to talk about. In the beginning, that is before anything else is, in the beginning, God. Let that permeate in your mind. In the beginning, God. I, I wish I, I had a, an accent from another country like Scotland or England so it maybe would stand out even more. In the beginning, God. It's not even a good imitation. But it might get you to think about the profundity, the, the profound nature of that statement. It's meant to be profound. Not because of an accent, but because of what it's saying. The very opening words, in the beginning, God. Imagine. To rattle around in your mind the incomparable, without point of reference, God. There's nothing to compare Him to. Think about that. It reminds me of Exodus chapter 3, where Moses receives the revelation from God, this profound revelation, and he knows what's going to happen. He's going to go back to the people and they're going to say, well, if God has given you this profound revelation, then tell us, tell us what this God's name is. You know, there's this pantheon of gods. There are all these many hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of gods. Uh, which God is this? Tell us his name. So Moses asks. Exodus chapter 3, listen. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? You know how it goes, most of you do. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He doesn't even answer his question. He just redefines the category. I'm God. I'm not manageable. There, there, there is no comparison. There's no point of comparison. I, I'm, I'm God. I'm Him. I am. Statement of self-existence, among other things. And you go, ah. <laughs> that was a dumb question, apparently. I'm glad he asked it. 
goes on to say, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, has sent me to you. This is my name. It's just meant to be striking. It's just meant to be, for me at least, a big little smack on the face. Big little, that's a contradiction. (sighs) To just have your jaw drop and go, uh, how does that work? (laughs) Got some explaining to do. (laughs) I I don't understand. The God who is like no other, the God who is really God, the God who is different, the God who is eternal, in the beginning God. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says he's from everlasting to everlasting. That shatters every category you have for everything you know other than God. Psalm 90, verse 2. Not only that, this reminds me of the holiness of God because it's very similar coming out of this. Isaiah chapter 6, other passages as well. Holy, holy, holy. That's just who he is. And, And I get this desire it's almost unrestrainable when i sit in that chair right there and we sing a song about the holiness of god because every single time i promise you i just want to come up here and preach a sermon i'm just itching to get up and say stop tyler or whoever's leading we sing holy 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 that great hymn i love that hymn or we sing some other song about the holiness of god because we sing a lot of songs about the holiness of god appropriately so but i want to say do you realize what you're saying It's true, but just stop and think about it. Separate, distant, untouchable. Here's another synonym, strange. Strange, strange, strange is the Lord God Almighty. Because there's no category. There's no referent. And we just have our minds blown because we're talking about this unreachable, holy unknowable God who's made himself known. And so we start learning about grace. I love it when we think about the holiness of God, but I'm just afraid that our familiarity breeds indifference. Please, so I don't have to keep sitting there just itching to get up like this. Remember who we're talking about when we're talking about the holiness of God. In the beginning, God. Separate, distant, strange one of my favorite words recently, it's an old word, but I'm trying to recover the way it used to be used, is the word awful. That's a great word. Think about it, literally. God is awful. It doesn't necessarily mean bad. He is awful, as in we stand in awe, dumbfounded, mouth hanging open. He's an awful God which might mean awful things for you in a great sense, should. Or it might mean awful things in a bad sense because he has no one like him. He is different from everyone else. I hope this is the most awful sermon you've ever heard in your life. (laughs) We should be in awe. We all know those verses. We We all know those first four words. We've said them. We've heard them. But it would be really, really good to just take a breath and pause. Ask the preacher to shut up. In the beginning, God. 
Let's move on now. This awful God, number two, when we're talking about him, we're talking about the God who creates. We're talking about the God who creates. We're just looking at the biblical storyline, basically. Today, we'll go from Genesis to Revelation, essentially. But number two, he's the God who creates. It has huge implications, which we'll talk about. But first, let's sample the text in Genesis 1. We won't have time to go through all of it. But let's just get a sampling for God's creation. Even though we know the story, let's see the godness of God in creation, if you will. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pause, 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 pause. It's meant to take the oxygen right out of you. He created everything? Yeah, that's who we're talking about. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. That's got God's fingerprint. That's got Godness written all over it. He just says it and it is. Whoa, I don't have a category for him. Verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. That's got Godness written all over it too because he's in charge, it's his, so he calls it whatever he wants to call it. And God said in verse 6, there is an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And my mind is spinning now, so it seems like something that God would do because I can't quite unscrew that and understand it. But what I want you to see is at the end of verse 7, and it was what? So. And that's the pattern. We're going to see it again and again. He says, and it is so. He says, and it is so. He says, and it is so. And that shows that this is a God who not only is, he's a God who creates. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, and God said, and let's just skip to the end of verse 11, and it was so. Verse 14, and God said, let's go to the very end, and it was so. And it just keeps going on, the same pattern. 24, and God said, and it was so. 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. Isn't that interesting? Even that shows us something about the godness of God. He's going to want human beings at the apex of his created order to reflect him, to give glory to him. Let's make them look like us so that we can be glorified in our creation. After our likeness, 26 goes on to say, and let them have dominion over the fish. Oh, that, that, that's getting them to act like God too because he has dominion he has ultimate dominion because he's the creator over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the of the of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth drop down to 28 and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it by the way subdue it now have that's like have dominion they're to act God-like and reflect him and give him glory in their actions have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's all to somehow point to God because we're acting like God, imitating God in our dominion. And then verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
because you've been to Awana and you've been to Sunday school class and you've been catechized or whatever has happened and you've read your Bible over and over again, all those things are good things. It's like, okay, what's for lunch? Instead, it's meant to be one of those awful things, those awe-inspiring things. We're not dealing with someone we can deal with here. The Creator God. Implications are through the ceiling. What would the implications be? If God has made everything that is, therefore everything ultimately belongs to whom? To God. It's His. Remember that as you read your Bible. He made this thing, and so therefore it's His, and He can do whatever He wants to do with it because it's His. Every person in this room has created something, even if it's a mess. <laughs> we've all made something with our own two hands, and if we've done it on our own time, it belongs to us to do with whatever we want to do with it. And God, on His own time, not while working for someone else, because he's the God who's in the beginning. He creates everything. Therefore, he's the God, the sovereign over all. We need to think about that. And we need to think like that. You belong to him. What right does he have? You defy logic with your question. <laughs> you evidence insanity with your question. He has every right in the world. What does he think he is, God or something? Yeah. You're getting warmer. <laughs> he has a God complex. Because he's God. That's who we're dealing with. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, verse 15 calls him the only sovereign. The sovereignty of God, which is interesting because he's not the only sovereign. Now, I'm not contradicting the Bible, and I believe it's all true, but here, here's the point. He just, we just learned how he makes man and woman in his image to have dominion. To have dominion is to have sovereignty. But it's under his dominion because he's the creator. So Paul can say in 1 Timothy, he's the only sovereign. As in, he's the ultimate sovereign over every other sovereign. Like king of kings, right? The sovereignty of God, or as I've heard somebody say recently, the sovereignty of God. I don't think that's the right way to say it, but I like it because it sounds wrong. <laughs> maybe it gets us thinking. And then I was wondering, maybe that's just the way my Kindle says it when I'm listening to Kindle audio. I don't know. If you say sovereignty, I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> he's in charge. It belongs to him. He can do whatever he wants because he's God. That's the idea. He's the king. This, but, but I realize this more and more. The longer I'm a pastor, I realize you don't have a category for this. I don't really have a category for it either. Not a good one. I tell you about the sovereignty of God, king of kings. He's above all. And your closest point of real reference as a United States citizen, if you are one, is the king we revolted against last time we were under a king 
We didn't like it very much. But we have to remember, those are fallen leaders. We're talking about the king who created, so it rightfully belongs to him, and he created it, as we will see, as good. And so it's a different category, but even then you have to think there's a challenge here because we don't have kings in our culture. We're talking about a good king who creates everything and therefore he is sovereign over it, so he's a legitimate king. Now let's move on to a third. When we're talking about God, we're talking about the God who has good laws. The God who has good laws. Now, I suppose you ask the question before we read the verse, does he have the right to have laws? If he's the creator of everything, he sure does. Just like if you created your own little world, you could make the laws because it belongs to you. If you write a game for Milton Bradley or whatever it is, and it's your game and you design it, you make the laws, you make the rules because it's your game. Well, this is not a game, but this is God's creation. He has good laws, not just laws. Genesis 2, 15, 16, and 17. The Lord... Remember, Yahweh, the great self-existent one, no categories for him, so he, man, he, he can do whatever he wants to do because he's the Lord. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. His prerogative, he's God. And the Lord God commanded the man, again, his prerogative to do it because he's the Lord God saying, you shall surely eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I say, that's not only a law. Think with me, if you would, that's a good law. Why would we say that's a good law? It's a good law because God is good. Oh, by the way, whatever he does is good because he defines good because he's God. That's another sermon in and of itself. Everything we have to go on so far shows that this is a good God. He creates this. He's not under any obligation. And not only is it good because it's what God says, it's good because it protects them, right? Because if they violate his good law that he gives them, what's going to happen? They die. So by nature of what it protects them from, it's good. Not only that, it's good because think about what God gave them. He makes everything. We didn't read the whole account, but if we were to read all all of the account, he makes everything. He puts Adam there. He gives Adam a, how about this, a perfect spouse. Perfect Everything is absolutely perfect. And, 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 and he has one law that says, don't eat from that tree. And there are reasons behind it, but in a sense, there wouldn't have to be any reasons. Because he's God. I'm just going to tell you one thing not to do. Don't do it. Because as soon as you do, you're not treating me like I'm God anymore. You're acting like you're God, right? Right? Now you think you're sovereign. You're defined logic. This is good for you to keep the creature create, creator, uh, or, yeah, creature creator distinction separate. Because otherwise it's, it's, it's insanity. This is a good thing. Maybe one more thing about this before we move on. Just to see that he has laws. Actually, it's law at this point, And it's good. There's, there's another way of stating what he says here when he says, don't eat from the tree. Uh, It comes up in Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy in Matthew chapter 22. It's, in one sense, the one and only law. 
the law that everything else is under. The greatest commandment, right? In essence, all God is saying to Adam and Eve is, love me with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength. Treat me like I'm God. That's all I ask. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we won't go there, but Deuteronomy 6.4 is very helpful at actually understanding this and seeing the comparison because in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is, anybody know? One. There's only one God, Mr. and Mrs. Israelite, Deuteronomy 6.4. Therefore, implication, logical outflow, love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, if there, were, if there were many gods other than Yahweh, the great I am, then we could, we could share the love. If we're God, we could share the love. If there's only one God, He gets all of our attention as the God. We worship Him and Him alone. We do what He says. We treat Him like He's God. And I keep emphasizing this because I want you to understand because sometimes we read the data and we've read it so many times we don't really think about it. In essence, all he's saying is treat me like I'm God. Don't you dare eat from that tree because the day you do, you're saying, I'm God because I do whatever I darn well please. It's a good law. Keeps logic in check. Treat me like I am God. doesn't sound very exciting so far, but I want to challenge you with this, especially when we get to this next point. With all of my heart, and I'm not a very smart person, but with all of my heart and all that I know, I think if you don't understand these basic categories, if you don't understand this basic storyline, whatever you believe and call it gospel, it won't be the gospel. It will be another gospel. You won't understand Christianity. You won't understand the cross. You won't understand the gospel. Because this lays the foundation. We've got a God who is. We've got a God who creates everything. We have a God who does have a law, and it is a good law. And now we're on to something else. We've got to understand if we're going to understand Christianity. And I think that's why we're all here. And that is he judges rebels. He judges rebels, people who act like they're God when they're not. And that's number four. When we're talking about God, we're talking about the God who judges rebels. And we see this in chapter 3 of Genesis. We see it in the whole chapter. We're not going to take the time to read the whole chapter, but we're going to see rebellion against the God who created and had a good law. Oh, if we drop down to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent says, you will, you will not surely die. Well, he said, you would. Now Satan says, you won't. So he's trying to feed the rebellion. Then if you keep going in verse 6, um, after the, about halfway through verse 6 or so, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's what God said to not do, and they did it. Verse 12 then says, the man said, so now they're busted. Now they've acted like God. They've committed idolatry. They they have a God complex, which defies rationality. Verse 12, the man said, here's his response, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
So you, you, don't, you don't have to pay a, a psychologist or a counselor to teach you how to do blame shifting. Uh, you can learn it from Adam. You're related to him, so it makes sense that you do blame shifting. But did you notice the blatantness of the blame shift? Uh, Adam, what's going on here? Uh, it, it, it was the woman. No, it doesn't stop there. It was the woman that you gave to me. This is your problem, God. It is not my problem. Yikes. This is flagrant rebellion with a rebellious attitude. Verse 13, then the Lord God, even the wording that he's using, the Lord God, the one true self-existent God who's utterly holy, who created. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. rebellion then we drop down to verse 19 after the first comma in the translation i'm reading from till you return to the ground there's a consequence he has a good law but he also judges rebels you're gonna you're gonna die at the end of that verse it says to dust you shall return maybe down to 23 therefore the lord god again the lord god the great i am god sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, the strong, powerful angel, that is, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. We're not going to take the time to go there, but if you went to Genesis chapter 5, and then you'd see the chronology, because remember, they didn't die physically right away, but they were instantly driven out of the good garden where God is dwelling. So spiritual death right away, but this is promising physical death, and you read the lineage, you read the line that comes after in Genesis 5, and it's haunting. So-and-so lived, blah, 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 and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he died. And it just keeps going on with that eerie refrain. And he died. And you just go, oh no. The God who is creates everything. It belongs to him. He has a good law. Treat me like I'm God. And there's been a cosmic rebellion. Since we use the word sin a lot, I like to use synonyms so we capture the idea lest we think it's just a Sunday school word that's antiquated. It is treason against the king, punishable by death. Cosmic treason, an attempt to overthrow the monarch who's rightfully the monarch. It's a horrific, horrific, horrific thing. And suffering comes as a result of this as well. We won't take the time to go there. We've seen it in some detail as a church in Romans chapter 8. You have death and suffering that go together. And with that in mind, I have a question for you. Death and suffering, death and suffering all around us. And I'm not trying to make little of it at all. But my really important question for you is, is the death and suffering that we see in this world fair? You need to say yes. 
doesn't mean you don't weep with those who weep, as the Bible would call us to do. It doesn't mean we don't talk about hope. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we don't show compassion to people who don't understand this. But if you are a Christian, please say it's fair. Please know that it's fair. The word fair means just. It means righteous. God is, God creates everything, so He's the sovereign over it. He has a good law, treat me like I'm God, and if you disobey, you're a rebel trying to be God, and there are going to be consequences. Death and suffering. Oh, and by the way, Romans chapter 5 teaches us that we all are in Adam. We're in spiritual union with Adam. He was our representative. So as hard as it is and you look around and life is bad and your body is broken, some more than others, you know that someday your, de- your name is going to be in the obituary. And it causes us grief and it causes us sorrow and it causes us a lot of serious things that I'm not belittling. But please, please don't, don't, if you're a Christian, say this isn't fair. I don't know how you're going to ever understand the gospel if you think this isn't fair. I'm concerned about how you explain the gospel to people if you think what's happening around us somehow is unjust. And again, I'm I'm trying to be blatant, I'm trying to be blunt, but I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. I'm saying, this is Bible 101 storyline. you got to get this. This isn't profound theological musings. This is what Christians have believed. This is what Christians believe. I haven't done any weird hocus-pocus. You've seen it all right there. Read Romans 8. Why is all of this horrible stuff happening? Well, it's tied to sin, but the hope is tied now to Christ. But before we get there, I want to push maybe the button just a little bit more. But do remember Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But here's, here's a tough one. I'll be honest with you, I like to ask this one, but it is a tough one even for me to ask. But I like it because it's going to help kind of smoke out where you are. Because I want those thoughts you think about God to be good thoughts. As in right, true, biblical thoughts, authentic thoughts. Let's just surmise a little bit here, hypothetically. If God, as God, because he is, chose to give no hope and chose to damn Adam and Eve to eternal conscious torment as well as you and me and everyone who has ever lived or whoever will live on planet earth with the exception of Jesus, because that would never happen. If he chose to damn all of us, here's the hypothetical. Would it be right for the angels in heaven to praise Him for it and worship Him? You can bet your bottom dollar it would. Because they worship God in light of what is true, 
They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They worship Him because He is righteous. They worship Him because He is just. They worship Him because He does what He says He's going to do. It's His world for crying out loud. And He said, the day you rebel against Me as God and play God yourself, my paraphrase, you die. For him to not do that would be for the angels to all say, he's a liar and a cheat and cannot be trusted. Which would never happen. But you get the idea. I want what's fair. Fair is we're all damned to an eternity. And the angels are worshiping God because God's acting like God. And by definition, he does what is right because he's God. Put that in your box. <laughs> You say, this is the Jesus I never knew. <laughs> well, then you never knew Jesus. Because the Jesus who is going to come is going to be the Jesus who satisfies the justice of God. At its most basic level, that's what the gospel ends up being. And we're going to get there. So I'm not trying to be mean guy. I got plenty of sleep last night. <laughs> Maybe a little edgy because I've had a little caffeine, but I'm trying to be a Christian teacher. I'm trying to be a friend and say, look, think about who this God is. Think about what you deserve and what I deserve, and we just deserve to be smoked. The God who is is the God we're talking about, but it doesn't end there, thankfully. Oh, by the way, maybe one more thing, since this is like the longest sermon I've preached in years. <laughs> The roast is going gonna, is gonna to burn, ladies. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and I just committed the major error of a public speaker. I draw attention to at the time. I'm a sinner. What can I say? Um, anyway. <laughs> By the way, for good news, this gets us to our next point. This isn't how it is. Here's how it is. According to Peter, salvation is something that the angels long to look at. They are meditating on how in the world this thrice holy, infinitely justice God could ever possibly pardon a cosmic rebel. And they're longing to look at the mystery of salvation because they didn't experience it. He damned the fallen angels. So this is a good thing. We're warming up to some good stuff now. So let's now move on to number five. We are talking about, when we're talking about God, we're talking about the God who promises redemption. Now we're ready to learn about redemption. Now we're ready to process and understand. And he promises redemption. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 gives us our first, first aroma, okay, of the gospel. Uh, theologians call this the proto Euangelion. You don't need to know that. You don't need to write that down. The first gospel, okay? The, 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 the proto-gospel. And here we have it at the latter part of the verse. But let's read the whole thing. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's not very gospel-esque. That's bad. And between your offspring and her offspring. I uh, don't have much hope in it so far until we keep reading and learn more about what he means. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's hope in that verse. There's a wafting of gospel hope in there, it would seem. First of all, if that was the only verse we had, 
I probably wouldn't draw this conclusion. It doesn't seem that hopeful. But you keep reading, and you will even see it in Romans 16. And you keep reading in your Bible, and you learn about what Christ did to Satan when he died on the cross. And then you read what other Christians who've gone before us have written about. I wouldn't want to base my salvation on that, but most Christians throughout history have referred to this, whether they've used the term or not, but as the proto-gospel. Because as there is the biting at the heel of the serpent, there will be something more severe, and it will be the boot of Christ on his head. Had to wear my motorcycle boots today for that one. There's hope in that. You see, the way God has set things up, he has allowed Satan to be in charge of death. And notice, he's the one that says when you sin, you'll die. So God is ultimately the the true sovereign. But God has allowed Satan to be in charge of that. And Christ on the cross smashes Satan once and for all. I know that's true because Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this. Listen carefully. That through death, through death nothing happens. Through death it's over. Unless you're talking about Jesus. That through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through his death he deals a once and for all death blow to Satan. And in light of the data, like that kind of data, I'm back at Genesis chapter 3 going, (sighs) this is good. This is helpful. This is hopeful. We're talking about a God who redeems. We're talking about a God who provides a solution to our, our death problem. But that's just the beginning. That's not all we have to go on. There's growing anticipation. We keep reading in Genesis and we learn about the Abrahamic covenant and we see that there's promised blessing to Abraham and his seed. We read Galatians and we find out Christ ends up being the fulfillment. We keep reading through our Old Testament. We find out about the Davidic covenant, God's promise with David, and then we find out, New Testament, Christ is the ultimate David. We keep reading. We get to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. We learn about the virgin birth. Someone is going to break into our universe who's different from us so that he can be the sinless one who's going to save his people from their sins. We know it's Jesus, virgin born, Matthew chapter 1. He's the ultimate Passover lamb from Exodus 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He's, I love it. This one's really important. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five. Jesus is called the last Adam. really important that we interpret the Genesis passage eventually at least in light of 1 Corinthians 15 because of the Adam correlation. And then we get to Isaiah 53 and we just have our minds blown. Redemption, freeing out of the slave market of sin that we're all enslaved to, redemption through atonement. God is angry with sin every day, the Bible says, and he himself atones for our sins. Isaiah 53. Let's read Isaiah 53. I don't want to shortchange you of this. Isaiah 53 is awesome. We'll just read through it. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper when we're done this morning, and this will be our preparation. We're dealing with a God who not only creates, not only the God who is, not only a God with laws, a God who punishes rebels, but a God who redeems 
Please have this be worshipful. Have this be meditation for your soul. Be impressed with Christ as our great Redeemer, as the one who crushes Satan's head and satisfies the wrath of God. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Notice this is substitutionary language. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Five, but he was wounded. Here we go. Substitutionary atonement language, which is vital. It's vital when there are false teachers writing books that we're buying up like crazy that say substitutionary atonement is cosmic child abuse. And you say, yeah, we don't believe in that. Well, guess what? Substitutionary atonement is quintessential, essential, and vital. Oh, and by the way, according to Ephesians, Jesus volunteered for the job. But let's make sure we understand substitutionary atonement. He gives himself for us so that the Father can judge the Son because we deserve death, but he gives his Son death on the cross. Let's keep going. I couldn't help but add the commentary. Five. Crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, notice substitutionary atonement, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to, to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered, who considered, it's a question, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord. How about that? The will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He, uh, the will of the Lord, shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. How about that? Satisfaction. He's going to be satisfied with the offering. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Oh, how about that? Crediting righteousness to us. Imputation Christ's righteousness. Philippians chapter 3. It's not our righteousness, it's his, but it's credited to us by faith. And he shall bear their iniquity, substitution. Therefore, I will divide a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I should have made my comment earlier there, because we see this is voluntary. How good is that? And if you need to have it interpreted for you, what's, what's going on there? Give me, a, give me an interpretation. Give me a, an explanation. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How about that? 
Why did this happen on the cross? It was to show his righteousness. It was to show that God is not an unjust God. He doesn't say, ah, forgive and forget. Let bygones be bygones. I know I said it'd be punishable by death, but I'm just going to kind of forget about it. Because then God would be a liar. He would be untrustworthy. And he wouldn't be just. Instead, what does he do? He upholds his justice. Because of his love, we would learn about elsewhere, he sends his son. He punishes his son, even though we deserve punishment, so that he can be the just, the righteous one, the fair one, to uphold his laws, and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, even though we're not righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's awesome. That's the gospel, basically. There it is. Jesus lives a perfectly righteous life so he can be a perfect sacrifice so that his righteousness can be credited to us as we read in Isaiah 53. He dies a sinner's death so the father can pour out his wrath on his son to satisfy his justice. He rises again from the dead, even as Romans says, for our justification. It doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't get any better than that. So that the one who believes, the one who has faith in Jesus, will have his righteousness. I know I've said this probably a hundred times, but I'm going to say it again. True or false, in order to get into heaven, you have to have perfection. And if you don't say true, There's no possible way you understand Christianity. There's no possible way you understand the gospel. And I'm not trying to be insulting. But I'm trying to speak lovingly so you understand Christianity, so you get into heaven. If God lets you into heaven and you don't have perfection on your side, there needs to be a cosmic rebellion because God is a liar and he's not just. That's why we believe in Jesus who kept the law perfectly, fulfilled the law perfectly, Matthew chapter 5. And when we believe in Jesus, His perfection, His righteousness is credited to our spiritual bank account so that now God declares us righteous even though we're not. That's called justification. And you say, well, those are big words and that's a lot to understand. You know what? It's very core basic. That's what the gospel is. The just for the unjust. You got, you, you so got to get it. Nobody's going to get into heaven without perfection. I'll be the first one to say, I'm not getting there based upon my own. Because we've all sinned. Christ's perfection credited to me. Right? Isn't this good? I feel like I need to repent a million times because I'm somehow sober about this. Urgh. Isn't this good news? Ah. No, no, I'm just getting tired. This is the best news ever. This is mind-blowing, mind-boggling news that you possibly could ever be accepted by God is absolutely astounding news. And it's all because of Christ. The God who redeems. He does it all. When you read Isaiah 53, you don't go, oh yeah, I see how we do our part and he does his part and in the end it all works out fine. 
It's all His righteousness. 6 and 7, quickly, we're talking about the God who restores all things when we're talking about God. We could go back to Genesis 3.15 for the, the initial aroma of this, but if we keep reading our Bibles, in Christ, He has res- brought restoration of all things. We could cross-reference to the book of Revelation and see how it ends. We could cross-reference to Colossians and see how He has reconciled all things through His Son. It's already done, even though it's not already done. Because of what Christ did, it's already complete. The work is done. It's just not fully realized. It's not fully actualized. That doesn't happen until Christ returns. But when you read those books, you see... God is not going to leave the world the way it is in a mess. Read Romans 8. He's not going to leave it like it is in a mess. He brings it all back the way it should be. Did you catch it when we were reading Isaiah 53? When he said, by his stripes you are what? You are healed? Now that's not even true. And I'm an inerrantist. I believe the Bible is without error. So hear me in context. That's not true because no one in this room is healed the way he's talking about in Isaiah 53. You're not healed. Why do you go to the doctor? The faith healers tell you you are if you just have enough faith, but why do they keep dying? And why do you keep giving them money? Proof of the fall and total depravity. (laughs) And of the devil. Think about it. That hasn't happened yet. But because of what Christ has done, as Isaiah 53 is emphasizing what he has done. Oh, by the way, in Isaiah 53, he hasn't even done it yet. But it's speaking of it in past tense. Because when he goes to the cross and he does his work, he secures everything then and there to the point where the prophet can say, by his stripes, you are healed, even though you're not. This is what Paul does in Romans chapter 8, right? Those whom, Romans eight twenty nine and 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he ju- justified, he also glorified. Duh. <laughs> Past tense. There's no one in this room who's glorified. If you think you're glorified, you're a false teacher. <laughs> Nobody, how about this? Nobody's glorified except Christ. Nobody's glorified until Christ returns. Read your Bibles closer. People in heaven right now don't have glorified bodies because we all get them at the same time. Read 1 Thessalonians. Nobody's glorified, and yet the apostle Paul, writing under inspiration in the context of suffering, says glorified because Christ's work is finished. (laughs) There's nothing left to be done. And so we have hope, not in hope, We have hope, we have an expectation of a future that is certain because of a past that is certain. The God who redeems and promises to restore all things. Oh, better yet, I didn't put it that way in the outline because I don't want to put it that way. The God who has restored all things. We could say, because it's as good as done. How is that for hope? How is that for getting you through suffering? Romans chapter 8. That's what gets you through. That's why Romans 8 is in your Bible. Finally, the God we're talking about is the God who cannot be ignored. He's the God who cannot be ignored. 
Satan tried to get Adam and Eve to ignore God. Genesis chapter 2, you shall not eat. Oh, excuse me. God says this, and then we'll get to the ignoring part. God says, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You will surely die. Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. Ignore God. And they do. And they die physically and they die spiritually. So let me encourage you with these words. When you hear Luke 9, the father saying, Behold, this is my son, the chosen one, in whom I'm well pleased. Here's the command. Listen to him. You can't ignore that. When you hear commands like the command in Acts chapter 16 that says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't ignore that. You can't afford to ignore that. I know you can't afford to ignore that because Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 18, but whoever does not believe is condemned. Good is done, just like the other stuff. Already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Don't ignore this God. He can't be ignored. You're defying logic to ignore Him in the here and now. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. See Him for who He is. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for our time together as a church this morning. Thank You for the riches that we have in Christ if we've believed in Him. Thank You for the gift of faith. Thank You for gathering us all here today in Your name to draw attention to You, not to ourselves. And thank You now that we can do what You've called us to do as believers, and that is to take bread and to take wine and to have a riveting reminder that You indeed are the God who redeems that you gave yourself up for us. And so, Lord, as we eat and as we drink, may it be a great time of worship for us. In Jesus' name, amen.